This is an ABC podcast. There, there is no other alternative for a Prime Minister than the rule of law. To Scott Morrison, stop dealing with this as a political problem and start doing the right thing. Not so much a tin air as a wall of concrete. Having children doesn't guarantee a conscience. Women who have put up with this rubbish and this crap for their entire lives. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing, joining you from Wurundjeri Country. And I'm Frank Kelly from RN Breakfast on Gadigal Land, the Eora Nation. And soon we'll be joined by Peter Harcher. Peter's the political and international editor of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age to talk about the unfolding crisis in Afghanistan. And if you don't know about the unfolding crisis in Afghanistan, if you've been, I don't know, hiding under a rock or maybe just locked in your room not listening to the news, as a few people I know in lockdown are doing, unable just to take in any more bad news, the big news this week is that the Taliban took control of Afghanistan, moving into the capital, Kabul, in much quicker time than the coalition forces and their governments were anticipating, than the Afghan government was anticipating. And that Taliban takeover has prompted thousands to try and flee the country, a country now facing an uncertain future after what's been dubbed Australia's longest war. We're going to talk to Peter about that. But first, PK, let's bring it back home. And it seems less and less likely that the lockdown, the COVID lockdown in New South Wales will end anytime soon, as the daily case numbers have skyrocketed above 600 a day. There was a 40% jump in case numbers in one day this week, and more cases emerging in Western New South Wales and the Indigenous communities there. I mean, 600-plus cases was shocking, but the Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, she's warning us it's going to get worse. At the moment, according to the data we have, every person who has the virus is spreading it to at least more than one person. Now, for us to know that we've reached our peak, that can't continue. So what the data is telling us in the last few days is that we haven't seen the worst of it. Oh, my heart sank. We haven't seen the worst of it. And there's a growing number of cases, for instance, in and around Wilkenya in far west New South Wales, which has a, a 74% Indigenous population. This town and other Indigenous communities out west have very low vaccination rates by and large, PK. Why is that when we knew that Indigenous communities were a priority? In fact, they are a priority 1B in the national rollout. Yet the vaccines aren't there. They're certainly, if they are, they're not in people's arms yet. And now, you know, this is potentially diabolical for some of these communities. Fran, it's devastating. And, you know, throughout the pandemic, the government has what I consider to have bragged really about the outcomes here, uh, partnered with the Aboriginal Health Services, keeping COVID out of our Aboriginal communities, recording no deaths from COVID in these areas as we record on a Thursday morning. But this just demonstrates that, you know, the pandemic continues. You can't walk around saying, hey, haven't we nailed it when your vaccination rates are, are as low as they are, which mean 8% in some communities, you know, are unbelievably low, and you leave your most, I think, crucial First Nations people at risk like this. Now, most of the cases in Western New South Wales are Aboriginal people, particularly young people and children. It's, in my view, a massive public policy failure, and it's a failure that the federal and the New South Wales governments, I think, need to share. Now, I kind of compare it to the aged care situation in last year's wave in Victoria. 
It was a big debate. Whose fault is it? And the truth is it's a shared responsibility. Yes, aged care, just to be clear, I know is a Commonwealth responsibility, but, you know, the chicken and the egg argument. It was the outbreak that was managed badly at the start, then much better by the Victorian government, which led to it getting into aged care. But then it was the federal government that allowed a situation where people were working across different um, aged care providers and therefore uh, being able to bring in the virus into different centres, which led to so many deaths, which is still, I think, a, a mark of shame for our country for last year. Same thing here. It is the Commonwealth's government to get high rates of vaccination for that priority group, Indigenous people. And on that, they failed. But it's the New South Wales government that should have, remember that ring of steel that was suggested and, of course, politically uh, there's no way they wanted to do it because Dan Andrews suggested it and it, I think it's been very politicised, that concept. But if you'd had a ring of steel, sorry, but whatever you want to call it, um, you would have been able to perhaps, not certain, uh, mistakes happen, people do dodgy things, but perhaps keep it out of these vulnerable communities. So column A, column B, they're both responsible. But going back to the substantial issue, we've got too many Aboriginal people now in, in these remote communities, in these regional communities who have COVID and are vulnerable and they're not protected. And now it's elders that are taking the, the bull by the horns and saying, get vaccinated. They're trying to do the work. But I just want to mention some of the things that are happening. I mean, some of the stories are ridiculous. Uh, people turning up to try and get vaccinated and, and told, Aboriginal people told, oh, you need to book online. I mean, get real. Seriously. Told, where's your Medicare card? I don't know. Just get the jab in the arm. They've turned yeah. up. I spoke to Ken White. In fact, when I was um, filling in for you and on your show, he said one of the approaches that we might do, that's been working is you know door knocking um, and just doing the the rollout. I said do it everywhere. Yeah, Roll it out. Knock on the I, doors. I heard that. And why aren't they? There are towns, small towns, where they have done that. The Aboriginal Health Services and the and the community and the elders have have got together and said, okay, we just got to make sure people get vaccinated. And they literally have gone door to door. And that's what the minister told you. And he's talking, you know, generally PK to you and other interviews about vaccine hesitancy. Well, we know that's true. And so why not? As you kept you know, pushing him, why not be proactive? Now they have sent in, for instance, some small army health units to these communities. And guess what? They're going door to door or street yeah. to street. And this is what the locals have been telling them needs to happen. It's just, I think it's it's shameful. And, and I hear what you're saying about the Ring of Steel. I mean, I do think, you know, Ring of Steel, this is the Delta variant. It was going to get through. And once it got into, and, and clearly they weren't getting in front of it in Sydney, it must have been obvious to many that it was going to likely get out and get into these communities. And even at that point, you know, why wasn't this all hands on deck effort for these small communities? There's not many of them. And I just think, you know, the ball was dropped again and potentially disastrous, as you say, disastrous um, results this time. We wait and see and hold our breath. But I think it comes down to complacency on the part of the federal government. That's something we keep coming back to here on the podcast. But a lot of it too comes down to vaccine supply. I mean, you're locked down in Victoria. I'm locked down in New South Wales and clearly will be for a long time. And that's really because the Delta variant is being proving so tough to get in front of. But now we've got children getting it in bigger numbers. You mentioned them in Western New South Wales, Indigenous communities, but almost 3,000 cases now recorded in Australia and children under the age of 10. In Melbourne, where you are, 20% of the new cases are kids. Um, we can't vaccinate children that young yet, 
But the Chief Health Officer, Kerry Chant, is very blunt. She said we need to get in and vaccinate our 12 to 15-year-olds now. Mm-hmm. Why isn't it happening? We're still waiting on the Atagi advice again. But why isn't it happening? I think it comes back to supply again, largely, doesn't it? We just don't have the Pfizer vaccine in this country to immunise another age group. And it is, I think you're right, Fran, it's absolutely about supply. And let's just mark this. I think this really matters. And and I know that this comes from a bit from a personal prism. Some people will criticise it, but I don't really care. Uh, We're on, in Victoria, for instance, in, in Melbourne, on our 200th day, as we record this, of lockdown. My own children and the many children in my life have missed out on formal education now for... 200 days, so to speak, uh, and uh, we want our kids vaccinated. If the Delta strain is ripping through uh, communities of children now, let's call it for what it is. It is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, if you look at the numbers now. And because we don't have enough people immunised but and children can't be immunised, even the ones that should be in the group, my, I've got a 12-year-old, I would get her a Pfizer shot tomorrow, today, if if it was available, because that's the only way we can send them back to school. That's the other part, right? When are we going to get a plan about what, yeah. what happens to school? And people say, oh, it's a pandemic, just ignore it. No, it matters. We are putting this generation, I think, in, 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 in an unreasonable position because of our lack of planning, and we have yeah. to accelerate it. And it's not just about, I think, and I absolutely agree with you, and, and I know you feel, felt it so acutely there at home with the kids, but it's not just about the, the sort of the maths and the spelling they're missing out on, it's the impact on their well-being, you know, it's on this, their mental health, and that's showing up, you know, in big numbers in Victoria after this 200 days, as you say. Um, I think, you know, schools going back in Sydney, it'll be a long time before they do. When they do, there's going to have to be, you know, they won't be going back, I don't think, properly without vaccination for that 12 to 15-year-old group. Certainly we've got to get all teachers vaccinated. Um, but it's it's really a major problem for the younger generation right now, not to mention their parents trying to deal with it, but for the kids' well-being, isn't it? I think your well-being point is the point. I mean, Fran, I gave up on <laughs> maths. You gave and, up on the reading and the spelling. Well, yeah, they do it anyway. I've got good kids that like to read, right? And that's, you know, that's great. They like reading because reading's really enjoyable. But beyond that, yeah, they're missing, they're missing the milestones, the developmental need of being with other children, mm. right? And I always make this joke, but no one should have to hang out with their parents that much. No one should ever be subjected to their parents that much, ever. Uh, Now, of course, pandemic, you're trying to cope with it, but where are the plans? Where's the vaccination plan for our younger cohort? We want jabs in arms for younger people immediately. And, of course, the Poland supply is, you know, a lot of it's going to southwest Sydney for people in their 20s. That's a great thing, but we need better planning around all of this. I think it's a really frustrating time. I absolutely agree. And let's discuss that further with Peter Harcher. I think it's about time to bring in our guest, don't you? Let's do it. (laughs) Peter Harcher, political and international editor of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Welcome to the party room. G'day, Patricia. Hi, Peter. Great to have you with us. Lockdown where you are, lockdown where we are. Um, We've just been talking about COVID and we'll come back to it. But, Peter, the biggest story in the world right now is what's unfolding in Afghanistan the capital, Kabul, 
has fallen to the Taliban in, in sort of record time. It looked like before our very eyes. It certainly took the international community and the Afghan government, it would seem, by surprise. And now our government, like others, is scrambling to get rescue missions out of these for the Australian citizens, the visa holders and Afghan nationals who supported our forces during the long war. But it's chaos. The first flight out uh, for Australia had only 26 people on board. Before that first flight had gone out, our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, was already working to lower expectations, I think, about that rescue mission. But I want to talk openly to veterans that despite our best efforts, I know that support uh, won't reach all that it should. On the ground, events have overtaken many efforts. We wish it were different. And we do wish it was different, Peter. The Prime Minister says uh, that the one flight that has gone in so far is the first of many flights, but I interviewed the Immigration Minister Alex Hawke on RM Breakfast this morning, recording this on a Thursday, and uh, he wasn't giving any details away. It, it seems like certainty and security is hard to come by in Kabul right now, even for our governments. We'll be getting as many flights in and out as the Taliban decide to allow us. That's the reality on the ground. Those uh, Hercules and Globemasters that go in and out are highly vulnerable uh, to shoulder-mounted rocket fire. All it would take would be one rogue Taliban unit, and that's the end of any evacuation. So this is a minute-by-minute -minute operation. The Prime Minister's talking in defeatist terms because he knows how complete uh, and utter the failure of competence and intelligence has been. In terms of, you know, as, as many as the Taliban allows, we hear the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister and the Immigration Minister saying, we, you know, we're talking to the Taliban and, you know, through other governments we're negotiating with the Taliban. What kind of negotiation, do you have any sense of what that might be or any sense of how many flights and how many days the Taliban, which is clearly in control now, and it's certainly in control of the checkpoints leading to the airport, but how many days they're going to leave the US um, army there in charge of the Kabul airport? Because, you know, we have no sense of whether that sits well with them or not, do we? Well, we know that they've given the uh, US military, US government, a deadline of September 11, which was the which was the stated Joe Biden uh, timeline to get all U.S. troops and forces out of Afghanistan. Uh, we know that the Taliban have said to the U.S., "We're going to hold you to that." Uh, so September 11 seems to be the drop dead date for Taliban tolerance, uh, but we don't know. I mean, in between now and then, you just don't know what else the Taliban will do. So it, you know, from from so far from appearances, it seems that they've adopted uh, different tactics than they have in the past. Uh, but the strategy, overall strategy, of course, is the same. The tactics being, let's not provoke um, a bunch of countries that are uh, still engaged in our territory and still have militaries uh, operational. Let's not provoke them. Uh, we, we've, we've claimed the prize. The prize has fallen into our lap bloodlessly. Let's just take it and uh, phase these guys out slowly. That's the tactic, uh, it seems. The strategy, of course, is the same, is, re is to retake the country, uh, to re-establish a fundamentalist, violent, Islamist, one of the most intolerant regimes the planet has seen in this century or any century, and uh, to, to, to rekindle our ties with the fundamentalist groups, including Al-Qaeda, that we have been sheltering throughout these 20 years. So the strategy hasn't changed, the tactics have, and probably September 11 is when that's going to run out. Mm.
With the Australian Embassy closed and, and no DFAT staff really on the ground, is this proving to be a logistical problem given the work that's needed to get people past these checkpoints and, and into the airport in Kabul? Yeah, it's, it's a logistical problem now. That is the result of a, a problem of an, an intelligence and capability failure from months ago, which in turn stem from you know an overall failure of intelligence and judgment. The decision to close the Australian embassy in Kabul in May is smart in one sense. It means that the Australians knew that it was going to the place was going to descend into chaos. That the uh, embassy was going to be indefensible, and that Australian personnel were going to were going to be were going to be at risk. So that was that was smart. But leaving no capability on the ground whatsoever meant that the Australian government was blind in Afghanistan. And as Peter Dutton said this week on the ABC, uh, Australia since May has been dependent entirely on US intelligence. And this is the US intelligence that said, uh, assessed that the Afghan government could hold for a year, then uh, changed its assessment to 30 to 60 days. And after the 30 to 60 day assessment was issued, uh, it turned out to be eight days. So Australia was relying on that intelligence because it had already shut its eyes, closed its mouth, and removed not only its diplomats, but remember when you close an embassy, your ASIS agents, your spies on the ground also disappear too. So yes, we've got, this is the this is the culminating point of a series of misjudgments. Yeah, and the misjudgments, as you say, not just on the part of our government, but other governments too. Nevertheless, our government was being urged for a couple of months now to start getting people out of there. And they kept saying, well, we are doing it. We're getting 430. It just seems so slow, Peter. And now... With the intelligence failure, everyone's been caught with the pants down, so to speak. But you mentioned the Defence Minister, Peter Dutton. On 7.30 this week, he was um, he joined the, the sort of um, the, 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 the argument being put by the international community now, the US government and the uh, EU, uh, in being trying to shift the blame to the Afghan government and the Afghan military, basically, for fleeing. Here's Peter Dutton. What we need to reflect on is... Uh, the failure of the ability of the Afghanis themselves uh, to take up the arms that they were given, to utilise the training uh, that was imparted on them. Many of those from the president down have abandoned their country and in that circumstance that makes for a very difficult exit and a huge uh, gain and a huge uh, win for uh, Taliban or whoever it might be if the Afghanis themselves aren't prepared to fight for their own territory. Now, Peter, fair point, I suppose. A lot of people looking on will go, well, yeah, if they're going to run away, why should we leave our soldiers there in harm's way? But I've heard a lot of vets this week, a lot of vets who spent time there in Afghanistan and fought the fight and thought they were working uh, for hearts and minds and to make this country a better place, and they were training, Australian troops training for years, training these Afghan forces, saying, well, we knew they weren't up to the job. And if we didn't know, Peter... How, why, why wouldn't we know? We're supposed to have trained, you know, along with the other coalition troops, 350,000 Afghan fighters. They had all the modern equipment. It must have been obvious on the ground if they weren't prepared, mustn't it? Yes, and Dutton, of course, is right uh, that a lot of the... I mean, there's plenty of blame to go around here, isn't there? I mean, this is a, a colossal failure of judgment strategy as well as competence of historic proportion. So there's plenty of blame to go around. And the Afghan uh, political leadership, military leadership, of course, have to take some responsibility. But yes, you're right, Fran, uh, this whole enterprise was 
a coalition construct uh, from the security on the ground up to the electoral system, the political system, and everything in between was a Western construct that had been 20 years in the making. And as you say, I mean, we Australia, but the West more broadly, had been on the ground continuously engaged for 20 years. And so they're now, so Peter Dutton, and but Biden's made the same point. He said mm. it's clear the Afghans wouldn't fight. These people are now asking us to believe um, that they, after 20 years, had no idea of the fragility of what they'd constructed. It's, their, it's our own construct. Again, uh, it, it is simply implausible that the Afghans alone are responsible for this. Mm. It's a Western construct. It's a Western failure. Let's talk about uh, the kind of, I think, moral um, dimensions of this. We have, well, we've participated in messing this up. So now we have to help the people that we have disenfranchised from not for not being there for them. Canada has taken in more than 20,000 Afghan refugees through the 20-year war. They've also signalled that they're open to taking another 20,000 people fleeing the country. In comparison, the Australian government plans to take in 3,000 through the humanitarian visa program, but that's actually just going to be absorbed in the existing program. It's not anything additional mm. because of the COVID. I spoke to Peter Dutton too this week and he said because of the COVID under 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 uh, use of the program, they can do that. Now, I know that, that Fran spoke to the Immigration Minister, Alex Hawke. He says the number will, will go up but doesn't say by how much. Do you think Australia is doing its part? Are we doing enough here? Well, I'd agree with you, uh, Patricia, that we certainly have a moral responsibility uh, to salvage as many of the lives of the people as we possibly can, of those, not only of those who've worked with us and helped us, but of uh, genuine Afghan refugees, uh, not only those who've helped us. But it's also, and, and look, Penny Wong has made this point forcefully in recent days, and I completely endorse this. It's a national interest, a, a hard national interest uh, uh, in this as well, and that is to show future allies, future partners, as well as our existing ones, that we are a reliable partner, a reliable mm. country, that we don't just walk out on our friends uh, when there's a crisis. So this is not just a humanitarian. This is a hard national security interest as well. 3,000, is it enough? Well, at the moment, you'd have to say that whatever the, uh, the, the pledged number is, is the secondary concern. The primary concern will be how many people can actually get out. Um, and if we can hit 3,000, we'll be doing extremely well. But... Um, is that number adequate? Well, I would argue that Australia has capacity and precedent to do much more. I think this is a political uh, management question from Morrison. I think uh, as the bloke who made his political reputation on stopping the boats, uh, he's trying to be cautious. He's, he's trying to not signal to whether it's um, his own constituents and his base or whether it's to people smugglers and others uh, that Australia is wide open and there's any sort of a welcome mat. So I think that's the explanation for the caution. I thought, I thought there was a very, you know, misplaced kind of um, messaging the Prime Minister was trying to do in that press conference when he was talking about the emergency flights to try and use that too to signal to uh, so-called people smugglers who might be out there and people who might be tempted to jump on boats that they won't get in. I mean, it seemed to be the wrong moment to do that and to signal specifically to the, you know, 4,000 or so Afghans here on temporary protection visas, some of who've been here nearly 10 years, they're working in the community, you know, that don't you think you're going to get permanency here just because, you know, your country's basically, 
you know, fallen into the hands of the terrorists, so to speak, um, it seemed very tin-eared to me and unnecessary. What did you think of that? Well, I think it's consistent with the theme that we've seen from this government from its earliest days, and that is that uh, there is no crisis so big, no problem so urgent, that this government won't delay, prevaricate, um, misjudge until the absolute last moment when, when we're at the absolute brink of a cliff and about to fall into the abyss before it acts. And I think the handling of refugees um, falls into that, into that same category, just as evacuations falls into that category, just as uh, vaccine rollouts, roll just as bushfires, you name it, mm. uh, just as the crisis of confident, uh, confidence in... Uh, it, I mean, it just doesn't matter where you look through, through the life of this government. It's consistent. I, I think it's just another example. It's a misjudgment, yes, but, you know, um, we've come to expect that. Look, Peter, I just want to bring you in on the conversation Fran and I began this podcast on, which of course is the kind of our own national crisis we're having. We've been discussing the growing number of COVID cases in New South Wales and in Melbourne as well, where I am, and also the COVID cases popping up in Indigenous communities in New South Wales. Again, they were a priority group left uh, to, uh, to vaccinate until it's almost too late. But, you know, on a broader issue, we're now seeing a breakdown, it seems, of the National Cabinet Agreement over the target we are heading for before we can get out without lockdowns, Gladys and raising this idea of, you know, getting getting these certain amount of jabs into arms before they look at freeing up some restrictions. This is becoming not really much of a national plan. We are, again, very much playing it very differently according to where you live. Yes, and although the the governments combined, federal and state, made a pretty good show at the outset with the creation of the National Cabinet and at least some sort of national coordination. What we have now still reflects a divide that has uh, bedeviled the whole Australian handling of this from day one. There was never a National Cabinet agreement on on what the the actual policy goal was. You'll remember uh, in the earliest weeks, they issued a formal statement the National Cabinet issued a formal statement of what the goal would be, and it said that Australia will pursue, the state and federal governments would pursue a uh, suppression slash elimination strategy. Now, they're two very different things, uh, suppression versus elimination, and they were both in the same <laughs> in the same statement with a slash between them. Slash. Now, that means, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so what the hell was it? It was one, other, both, neither, who knows? And we see that played out now. Uh, There was never an agreement. Western Australia is still pursuing uh, eradication. New South Wales will just be happy with suppression. And what the hell happens when they hit 70 80%? Lord knows. And in the meantime, once again, on all the other elements of this crisis and the management tools that are available, state and federal governments are just too slow. The rapid antigen testing, uh, one of which um, was invented in Brisbane and has been sold by the hundreds of millions to the US, is still not fully approved for use in Australia. I mean, it's unbelievable that, that that the chemists, the pharmacists network, after a year, it took them a year before they were allowed permission mm. to start vaccinating people. Once again, it's just this complacency. I, I, I always say that it's Australia's traditional enemy, is complacency. Mm. And we saw, we've seen that uh, from the, the earliest, actually the earliest phase I thought Australia carried off pretty well, but because of that initial success, we then lapsed into our into our traditional complacency and it pervades the system to this day. Yeah. 
And now, um, just finally, you know, you mentioned WA there, Mark McGowan clearly sticking to the elimination strategy. He said, you know, he says the plan is 80% when there's zero cases. Uh, experts suggest that we're never going to get to zero cases probably with the Delta strain in New South Wales as it is and probably in Victoria and other parts. So, you know, that argument is still to come, but we've got Mark McGowan now closing the border to WA unless people are fully vaccinated. This is a whole nother step in the sort of disintegration, if you want, I think or the border wars, what's the role of the Prime Minister here in this National Cabinet? He seems to be completely at hostage, the hostage of the states and the territory leaders, and that is how the Constitution's designed, I suppose. But, you know, do you think the, the Prime Minister and the, the federal ministers, the federal government, could be at least trying to exert more leadership and persuasion here publicly to the states and, and territories? Uh, I think... Anything along those lines by way of public uh, statements or public urgings or hectoring will only widen the, 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 the rifts that are already occurring. And beneath the surface, the relations between Morrison and the premiers is getting poisonous. Um, I don't think that would help. I think the best thing that Morrison can do, I think to answer your question, what is the role of the Prime Minister, it's to exercise the federal function to the best of his capability. The federal, the sole, the sole response—it's the sole responsibility of the federal government to provide vaccines. Uh, the federal government should concentrate on that. We know that the—we are all having such trouble in Australia with the Delta variant because our systems were were built on the assumption that the Alpha variant was the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, uh, and hence the sort of uh, stroll out and the very uh, complacent. Uh, handling of everything. What we should now be, and what Morrison should now be doing, is first concentrating on maximising vaccine production and rollout in Australia now to deal with the Delta variant. But looking ahead, because the Delta variant is not going to be the last variant. No. There'll be more, and and we need mRNA vaccines, which the ones which can be rapidly gene edited to deal with a new variant. And we don't have the manufacturing capacity. The government, federal government, last talked, first talked about setting up a domestic RNA manufacturing capacity in October last year. Mm. They still haven't got a contract signed. Yeah. Yeah. You can see the next phase of this crisis coming down the track. That's where Morrison, that, that is his role and that is where he should be focusing his energies. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Hey, Peter, take care in lockdown. You can do it. <laughs> you too. Let's all try and keep our spirits up despite the news. Thanks yeah, very much, Peter. I'll see you on the 5K border. Thank you. Good on you. Bye. Questions without notice, the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. Yeah. The bells are ringing, that means it's time for question time. This week's question comes from Nick in the UK. And Nick asks, I'm emailing with a question about the Doherty modelling, which we've heard will reduce restrictions once 70% of Australian adults are fully vaccinated and will end lockdowns when we hit 80%. Here in the UK, though, we are lucky that 77% of adults are fully vaccinated and yet we're averaging more than 25,000 cases and almost 100 deaths a day. I don't believe that Australians will be willing to tolerate that much community transmission. As journalists, how can you interrogate the modelling 
without getting lost in epidemiological weeds and having done that interrogation, do you trust that Australia can be free and safe when we hit 80%? Frank Kelly, what do you think? Well, I have been lost for months in the epidemiological weeds, I think, Nick, so that's a, a good point. Um, do we trust Australia can be free and safe when we hit 80%? Well, 80% of what is the first question? 80% of adults is what the Doherty modelling is referring to. We were speaking earlier on the podcast about the infection rates amongst children, so I think we're going to need to be perhaps adjusting those numbers and acknowledging we need to vaccinate um, more of the community, certainly from 12 onwards. So that'll be a different figure there, I think. And Pika, I know you've been speaking to Jodie McVernon, who's done this modelling uh, about that. But I, I also think that will we be, will we, will Australians be prepared um, to trust that? I don't think we can actually know mm. what the community is prepared to go with until many, many more of us are vaccinated, because I think that changes the mindset. Right now, people feel vulnerable. People are vulnerable because most of us aren't vaccinated. But when we are vaccinated, most of us, I think maybe that message about you know, learning to live with COVID, accepting some people might get sick or you might, I might get sick, I'm vaccinated, but I might get sick in the way I have a flu shot and I still get sick with flu. If I'm not terrified, I'm going to die from it. I think that will change it. I think it's impossible, impossible for us to expect that we can get back to zero community transmission before we're prepared to open up. I just think that's not going to happen. I think, Fran, you are dead right. The other part of it is community confidence in opening up potentially will significantly shift once well, everyone's had the right to be vaccinated. And that kids issue we talked about earlier in the podcast will be key as well, because I do think people are worried about, um, you know, that that part of our population not, not having coverage. So that will have to be dealt with. And then don't forget the fatigue as I was going on about 200 days in lockdown in Melbourne, uh, but also look at the long lockdown in Sydney. I think that fatigue is changing mindsets too. Mm. I've seen it in my own life where people who were very hard line have said, oh, you know, I think we need to start thinking about a shift here when more of us are vaccinated. I interviewed, for instance, um, Tony Blakely on Afternoon Briefing and he said to me, and, you know, he's always been a pretty hard liner on, on um, locking down, that in Victoria, for instance, we've got to give it one last shot for two weeks with the, you know, extreme lockdown, the playgrounds and the curfew. If we can't really smash it then and go close to zero, we've got to think about opening things like the, the you know, the curfew and the, and the playgrounds up because... Yeah. It's just too much of an imposition now because of the mental health crisis going on. And that, I well, think, is significant. But I don't think we'll be opening up like that until we get many more people vaccinated. But it, it is finally happening and the vaccines from next month will be coming in significant numbers, thank heavens. Thank heavens, absolutely. Look, it's funny he mentions in the question the Doherty modelling. I interviewed Jodie McVernon on your show as well. Oh, lots of good interviews on your show, Fran. What a good show, um, as is RN Drive. But... On your show, Jodie McFernan came on and I said to her, you know, you, you've done the modelling for the road, national road plan, the four stages out. And I spoke to her and I said, how is that roadmap looking? She said, well, it's a bit like a birth plan. It was such a good analogy. She said, it's a, like a birth plan. You go in with the plan and then I said, what? And then the baby gets stuck. She goes, yes, that's what's happened. <laughs> so basically her plan or their plan based on the modelling is... Um, I think a bit up in the air based on the fact that we've got this outbreak, particularly in New South Wales, but look at the spread in the ACT and these stubborn numbers that are frustrating me in Victoria, which mean COVID is now with us. So we're kind of living with it earlier than these small outbreaks that they anticipated.
Okay, that's it from us. Send your questions in because we love getting them, of course. What's not to love? You can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And, of course, remember you can follow The Party Room, uh, listen to it on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app. Well, that's it for The Party Room this week. We'll be back next week. See you, PK. Stay safe. See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.